0: Hello everybody, this is Jeremy. We have some off-season content for you today. We are between seasons two and three here at the Do Theology Podcast, and we like to throw some stuff at you between the seasons that's a little different, not our typical episode format. And so today we're going to be sharing with you a debate that I engaged in at the start of November with an atheist, Uh, his name is Benjamin Speed, and the... uh, The debate topic was, is God the standard of morality? And if you are a presuppositional apologist, you're just like salivating to be able to debate that with an atheist, right? So it it was a good conversation. It was interesting. He does believe in objective morality. Most atheists don't. So that made him quite a bit different. But uh, it it was a fun interaction, and I hope it's a helpful interaction for you as you listen through it and perhaps even share it with an atheist friend of yours. Who needs to hear the gospel again? This debate took place on The Gospel Truth. The Gospel Truth is a YouTube channel and a podcast. He takes all the uh, debates that take place uh, live on video on his YouTube channel and he puts them in audio form on his podcast. So you can catch up with those there. You can listen to a wide variety of debate topics. Um, on on his channel, and his name is marlon wilson he 's a great guy, brother in Christ, who just gets guys on to talk out uh, theological issues, uh, sometimes not theological they 've he 's had some interesting topics on there before that have to do with politics and aliens and all kinds of crazy stuff, but mostly christian theology and uh it It was a great time uh, on there and I hope to do more debates on his platform in the future. He has allowed us to share this audio on our channel, and so it's our pleasure to share this with you and to say, check out The Gospel Truth, go subscribe to his stuff, because you you don't want to miss the content that he's able to provide with his platform. Thanks a lot for listening today. Hope this is helpful. Remember to drop us a rating or a review and reach out to us on social media, at Do Theology on Twitter and on Facebook. You can also send us an email at show at dotheology.com. Stay in touch. We want to hear from you. We want to know how we're doing and what we could do better to better serve you. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day.
1: All right, all right. Thank you for joining me on this episode of The Gospel Truth. I'm your host, Marlon Wilson, and I thank you for joining me. Got another great show for you today, another great debate. I have Jeremy Howard versus Benjamin C. Blake, and they are here to join me, man. Benjamin just stepped in on the last-minute notice. Um, uh, Skyler Fiction, uh, I think it was promoted. And uh, he was not able to participate. He's taken a step away from debating. Therefore, I reached out to Benjamin and he said he'd jump in into the, the Gospel Truth Oct- Octagon, you know, and jump in here with Jeremy Howard to have a great discussion or debate but uh, I do want to thank you for joining me and I do want to go ahead and encourage you to like and follow the gospel truth please do make sure you hit that like make sure you hit that subscribe make sure you hit that notification bell uh, so you can stay in a loop of what the gospel truth has going on we have a whole bunch of great shows coming up we have a whole bunch of great stuff going on and I really do like want you to be a part of that all right. um, and one of the things you can do to support the ministry, at the very least, is to subscribe and hit that notification bell so you stay in the loop with the gospel truth has going on. Also, all this content is on podcast, so if you're just one of those individuals who like to listen on the go, uh, all this content is on podcast. It's on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify, so make sure that you're flown over there as well to make sure you're staying in the loop with what the gospel truth has going on, because once again, like I said... You don't want to miss out on any of these shows, all right? A whole bunch of debates are coming up. A whole bunch of interviews are coming up, and you do not want to miss out. So please, please stay in the loop with what the Gospel Truth has going on. Uh, Speaking of shows, I do have a bunch of shows coming up, so let me go over those real quick. Coming up November 10th, I have William versus Shane. Which worldview best represents reason, logic, and empirical data? That's coming November 10th at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. After that, I have Stacy versus Justin. Full Preterist versus Futurist was the end of the age and the return of Jesus Christ completed in 70 AD. That's coming up November 13th at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. So stand in the loop for that one. After that, should we hold the solo Scriptura? All right, I have Timothy Anders versus Sun, Sun Sona. All right, so that's coming up Monday, November 16th at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. That's 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So make sure you stay in the loop for that one. And then lastly, I have David Green and then Jerry Harbour's coming back November 21st at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, which is 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Does the Bible teach that God is three and one? So a Trinitarian versus the one is debate. So this should be an exciting time. So make sure you once again stay in the loop of what the gospel truth has going on. Do not miss a show. Please do not miss a show. All right. With that said, I do want to bring my guests in and let them introduce themselves to you guys and uh, get into this debate. What's up, guys? How y'all doing?
0: Hey, doing, doing well. well.
1: All right, thank you for joining me on this episode. I appreciate you. Hey, man, thank you for jumping in this last minute, man. Man, me and Jeremy have been through a bit of a a, a journey with this topic here, man. Okay, so the first time Scott Fiction was supposed to debate, and he just went off the just off the charts. And nobody could find him, and then he finally posted a video saying he was doing his thing, and we're like, "What happened?" He said, "Oh, my bad." I should have reached out to you guys. So then we rescheduled the debate. Then he left again. This time, he's no longer debating religious topics. So uh, it's been a bit crazy for this one. A bit crazy, a bit crazy. So I thank you for joining me, Ben.
2: Thank you for uh, thinking of me and reaching out to me. It was. Uh, I'm glad to be able to come here, and hopefully I can help contribute in some positive ways.
1: All right. Thank you. Thank you. What's the word, Jeremy? How you doing, buddy?
0: Doing well, excited to debate the validity of the election. I think this is going to be a great debate tonight.
1: All right, all right. <laughs> it, it's, going to, it's going to be a fun one. It's going to be a great one, man. I thank you once again for joining me. So before we jump into the format of this debate, I do want to give you a chance to introduce yourself to the audience um, and get, tell them a little about what you do, tell them what you got going on uh, and, and share some, share, uh, some of the, the, the social media uh, aspects you have going on so they can go subscribe, like, whatever they do, all right? First up, Jeremy, if you will mind, give a quick introduction to yourself, man.
0: Yeah, I am Jeremy Howard. I'm a pastor in Utah. I am not a Mormon. Uh, I just live in Utah. I'm the pastor of Orchard Hills Bible Church. I also write on my website, jeremyhoward.net, and uh, I'm a podcaster. Uh, Do Theology is the name of the podcast that I co-host with my friend Ken Chipchase, and you can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter. Uh, those are the two places where I do most of my social media interaction. So uh, hit me up one of those ways, if you'd like, and we'll connect.
1: All right. Thank you, Jeremy. All right, Ben. Ben, uh, go ahead and be quick introduction yourself, man. Um, So my name's Ben Watkins. I
2: live in Norfolk, Virginia. Um, I'm a nuclear engineer for, uh, I work at the Norfolk Naval Shipyard uh, for the United States Navy, um, refueling submarines. And I'm also the host of Real Atheology, a philosophy of religion podcast. So I'm an engineer and a philosopher, so I'm something of a strange breed. Um, But in my podcast, we explore questions in the philosophy of religion from an atheistic perspective. And so what we want to do is try to understand the other side as best we can while also trying to salvage as many religious concepts as we can to see what religion can look like moving forward if we are to reject theism.
1: All right. All right. Thank you so much. Once again, you guys for joining me on this episode. All right. So we're going to jump into this debate. The topic of this debate is God, the standard of morality. All right. So we're going to start off with 10 minute opening statements. Then we'll have five minute rebuttals. We've got a cross-examination of 50 minutes. The first 30 minutes will be 15 minutes each to ask questions. And then we'll follow that with 20, that that last 20 minutes will be an open discussion where I may have some questions for both of you. Uh, After that, five minute closings, and then we have some Q&A from the audience. Sounds good? That's good. Sounds great. All right, Jeremy, you are arguing affirmative in this debate. So you're up for your 10 minute opening. And let me get your time set up and I'll let you know when to go. Jeremy, you got it, man. 10 minutes.
0: All right. I've got a a written opening statement, this is the only thing that I have scripted uh, for the debate, so I'm going to read through this, and 10 minutes is fast, so I will be reading pretty quickly. Um, As I begin, I want to state my thesis to answer the question, Is God the Standard of Morality? I want to answer that with my thesis very plainly. Uh, My thesis is that the Creator is absolutely free to glorify Himself By governing his creatures according to his will alone. Uh, This is a debate about authority. The title, Is God the Standard of Morality?, is full of implications. It assumes that God is, that morality exists, and that there are appropriate standards by which we judge the world around us. All three of these implications are right and true, and all people are held responsible for recognizing them. "'God is ultimate authority. "'There is no standard above God Himself. "'What He wills, what He says, and what He does "'is only perfect always. "'All of His judgments and commandments are right and pure. "'He can do no wrong in any way whatsoever. "'He is the only true and good authority. "'Morality has to do with the discernment of good and evil. "'Therefore, any conversation about morality "'naturally assumes the existence of good and evil.' As human beings made in God's image, we recognize these categories because, at a fundamental level, we recognize the presence of certain eternally unchanging immaterial realities. We embrace and employ logic, mathematics, scientific laws, and a whole host of other actualities. These eternally unchanging immaterial realities come from the eternally unchanging immaterial God. Thus, if we understand who God is and what morality is, the only reasonable position that one can hold is that the Lord himself is the standard of morality. A naturalistic worldview is completely insufficient in explaining the fact that good and evil exist. In fact, many atheistic materialists deny categories of good and evil because the very categories demand the existence of a standard outside of themselves. Atheists cannot consistently affirm their own position over and against other positions since doing so would destroy their claims. It is self-refuting to claim that naturalistic morality is better than any other view of morality since it cannot account for the categories of better and worse. Materialists are unable to assert with any measure of authority that another person's values or actions are evil. Who sets the rules concerning what is right and what is wrong? If these are legitimate categories, and they are, there must be a totally authoritative source who is free and able to govern all of creation as we participate in these categories. Only the Lord can perfectly establish righteousness and justice. Only God can establish law, perfectly defining good and evil for his creatures. Only the Lord is truly authoritative. If God is not the standard of morality, we go on to assume that position for ourselves. Like the rest of us, uh, Ben is fallible. He changes. He caters to his own desires. He, like all of us, is prideful, selfish, and sinful. Furthermore, Ben is utterly bound by his limited nature, preventing him from having perfect understanding and wisdom. His judgments could never be pure if he's left to his own devices. We can't have a consistent understanding of good and evil if we reject God as the standard. If we assume the position of God and being our own standards of morality, we end up with just that, standards plural. Differing standards of right and wrong then create chaos and absurdity. It could be right, for instance, to encourage or even demand murderous actions in one place, and equally right to prohibit murder in another place. Two completely contradictory sets of values and axioms would be seen as totally correct at the same time if God is not the standard. This is utter absurdity, and it is one of the evidences of the Christian worldview. Without God, we can't possess a consistent moral standard. Since God is the standard, he is the one who is always right, and all of his creatures are obligated to submit to him. He cannot deny himself. He cannot sin. He is not the author of sin. He is perfect and infinite. The chaotic and absurd worldview of atheistic materialism can be traded for genuine truth flowing from the only true authority. The Lord is the reason we recognize the absurdity of the materialistic system of morality, God has created a universe full of consistency and has placed within each of us the knowledge that he exists. He has given us consciousness and a conscience. We live in a designed and ordered planet where contradictions and chaos are understood as things the way they shouldn't be. When we repent of our desire to be the standard and submit to him as the only perfect and authoritative standard, we start to experience true knowledge and wisdom. As a Christian, my worldview begins with God as he has revealed himself. That is my starting point. Ben has his own starting point that must be put on display so that we can discern if the alternative to the Christian position is in fact possible or reasonable. What I hope we'll see today is just how impossible the atheist worldview is. There is no foundation in this system. There is no standard for any objective claims. In the atheist worldview, that which we embrace today as right and good may be rejected tomorrow because there is no true certainty whatsoever. This alternative to the Christian worldview must be examined. Additionally, I desire to see this debate stay on topic. We are not here to discuss the question, do we approve of God's actions based on our preferences? Instead, we are discussing whether or not God is the standard of morality. We are debating whether or not God has the right to do as He pleases. We are debating whether or not God is absolutely free to glorify Himself by governing His creatures according to His will alone. As we hear a contradictory and evil worldview presented over and against the Christian worldview that proclaims God's total and comprehensive lordship, let us remember that Ben embraces fallen earthly wisdom because he is spiritually blind. He has no sensitivity toward gospel truth because the totally free creator has not caused him to be born again to a living hope. I am not here to convince him with my own cunning. I could never do that. I am here to testify of the true and living God, the standard of morality." People deny the Creator as the standard of morality because they hate the Creator. Many people are very angry that the Lord has authority to establish good and evil. They have no basis whatsoever in critiquing the judgments and actions of God, yet they do. And they do so because of their sinful condition. Why would a creature ever say to the Creator, You are wrong. The answer is because men love darkness rather than light. God is light and He is absolutely free to govern His creatures according to His will alone. Not only is God absolutely free, but he is the definition of good. Anytime God freely acts, he is acting righteously and perfectly. When God condescends to interact with his creation within time and space, he demonstrates all of his perfections. His pure and holy attributes are in full display as he makes known his glory and power. This is evidenced quite clearly in his relationship with Israel in the Old Testament. God put his grace on display by making a nation out of sinful men and women, his enemies. God put his justice on display by giving this nation holy and good commands about how to live and by destroying his nation's enemies, a fate Israel itself deserved were it not for his grace. God put his covenantal love on display by continually caring for and protecting Israel, though they were a rebellious people who often rejected him and his commands. As we read the Old Testament, we see how the Creator brought glory to Himself and taught humanity about His nature as He governed His creatures according to His will alone. These events found in the Hebrew Scriptures served yet another purpose, though. Galatians 3.24 states that the law was a guardian intended to lead Israel to Christ. First Peter 1.12 states that the prophets of the Old Testament had the Spirit of Christ and were prophesying as a service to Christians who live today. The book of Hebrews teaches us that the sanctuary, the priesthood, and the old covenant were all foreshadowings of something better, Jesus Christ. The absolutely free creator freely chose to be born in the likeness of a man. Being found in human flesh, Jesus lived a perfect life on behalf of his people and died on the cross on behalf of his people. He endured what we deserve, a brutal punishment and death. Our sinfulness demands the death penalty and eternal suffering, but grace and mercy are found at the cross where eternal life is purchased. Three days after his death, Christ rose again, fully proving his lordship, and all those who trust in his work alone will be saved from their sin, justified by the holy God, and given newness of life. So for all of us who have believed in this message, let us submit ourselves completely to God. Let us be careful about finding something we don't like in Scripture and saying, I don't like this, therefore I reject it. God is God and we are not. Let us imitate Job and put our hands over our mouths, yielding to the absolutely
1: free and good God of the universe. All right, thank you, Jeremy, for that opening statement. All right, Ben, you are up for your 10-minute opening. All right, Ben, you got it.
2: We've been asked tonight to discuss whether God is the standard of morality or not. I will be arguing that God is not the standard of morality. Instead, I will make a rationalist case that reason or normative reasons are the standard of morality, such that morality is a function of reason more broadly. To begin, let's examine what I mean by reason being the standard of morality. This view is often referred to in the metaethical literature as ethical non-naturalism or anti-reductionism. On this view, some things matter in a moral sense because there are reasons for everyone to care about them. Some reasons are also moral reasons because they are stronger than any other competing reasons we may have. Truths about moral reasons do not have any ontologically weighty implications, i.e., they do not imply the existence of anything other than themselves. Everyone has a decisive reason to accept the conclusions of sound arguments, We have obligations not to contradict ourselves, and a patient's suffering counts in favor of a doctor trying to alleviate it. Because reasons are irreducible, normative truths about intrinsic value or what is morally good or bad are primitive, meaning they can be neither analyzed without remainder nor totally restated using non-normative terms and concepts. Something might be intrinsically good if it is in itself good or worth achieving in its own right. And something might be intrinsically bad if it is something we should try to and avoid. Some things might have intrinsic value in the sense that we have reasons or it is rational for us to want them for their own sake, regardless of what anyone may desire or would choose after some rational deliberative process. For example, justice requires us to treat similar cases alike. Prudence requires we have equal concern for all parts of our lives. And benevolence requires us to treat the good of others as much as their own. But I need to say something here about our moral responsibilities or moral obligation. The central question of ethics or moral philosophy is to consider what we should do in ways that matter. Moral autonomy is the self-governing, reason, self-governing of reasons and principles without the imposition of an, any external influences. As rational animals, our reason-implying capacities of self-governance when considering what we should do is essential to our concept of moral responsibility. Unlike the externally imposed commands of an authority or the legislation of a state, moral reasons and principles are self-imposed. We are morally accountable to the self-contempt and inner abhorrence of each of our own consciousnesses. Our moral responsibility is the status of morally deserving praise and blame for our acts with respect to what we owe to others or our moral obligations. For us to be morally responsible for our acts, we must consciously reflect on our situations, form our own intentions, and then self-direct what we believe to be the right course of action. We could not accept an unqualified claim on our intentions by an authority or a legislator when deciding what we should do. Such a deliverance of will or subjugation is incompatible with moral autonomy, because it opts out of moral reasoning and responsibility altogether. We could neither give moral criticism nor advice to an authority or state that has an unqualified claim to our obedience. We've now arrived at our first objection to the claim that God is the standard of morality. Our concept of moral responsibility implies that God cannot be the standard of morality, because moral autonomy implies that morality is self-imposed rather than externally imposed on us by the commands of some authority. This argument is most clearly understood in Kant's famous formulation of his categorical imperative he called the kingdom of ends, which is a world where everyone autonomously wills their own deserved happiness by acting from a sense of duty for its own sake. I want to now turn my focus squarely towards my case that God cannot be the standard of morality. When we characterize a moral truth, we give neither a causal nor empirical description of it. We characterize justifications of how we think and act in the logical space of reasons. The idea that morality is analyzable without remainder into non-normative facts is a radical mistake. Attempts to reduce the logical space of reasons to the causal realm or the realm of law will commit what is known as the naturalistic fallacy. This fallacy is derived from David Hume's well-worn is-ought distinction. According to Hume's objection, there's a fundamental difference or metaphorical gap between non-normative facts, or is-statements, and normative facts, or ought-statements. To confuse these two different kinds of facts is to commit the naturalistic fallacy. In the case of God and morality, the property of being forbidden by God would be a concrete, non-normative property, but the property of being a wrong act would be an abstract normative property. These two kinds of properties could not be identical because they are in different non-overlapping domains. For the same reasons, rivers cannot be identical with sonnets. Moral properties cannot be identical with psychological, behavioral, or otherwise causal properties. We can call this the normativity objection. I would be remiss in my duties as a moral philosopher if I did not say something here about Plato's famous Euthyphro Dilemma. According to this objection, if there is no reason for God to issue one command rather than another, then morality is arbitrary. But if there is a reason for God to issue some command rather than another, then morality does not depend on God, but instead on that reason. Either way, morality does not plausibly depend on God. But why? If we suppose there are no moral reasons such that God should not act in certain ways rather than others, then then there is no moral justification for God's acts. God's acts would, by definition, be arbitrary. According to this horn, there is no moral difference in God commanding us to love one another or to eat each other. Since there is a moral difference between these acts, this view cannot be true. This view, contrary to apologetic belief, is close to nihilism. If we suppose there are moral reasons such that God should not act in certain ways rather than others, then there are moral considerations independent of God's nature or commands. According to this second horn, God's acts are morally justified because there are reasons constraining God's acts in morally important ways. This second horn is closer to the truth. Some people may object that God's commands are constrained by his necessary nature. So God's commands are morally justified by his internal reasons. This supposed third option insists that there are reasons for God's commands, so they are not arbitrary. These reasons are internal to God, so morality still depends on God. And these reasons are morally important. I want to head off this objection by distinguishing internal reasons from external reasons at the very start. God's internal reasons would consist of causal properties or a subjective motivational set, but external reasons are independent of any subjective motivational set. They are what's morally important because they are the considerations counting in favor of having one subjective motivational set rather than another, i.e. God having a loving nature rather than a hateful one. Internal reasons are morally unimportant. So the supposed third option is actually just a modified first horn. The binary choices of having a moral reason and not having a moral reason cannot present us with a genuine third option to this general dilemma. To quickly recap, I defended a form of ethical non-naturalism that insists the standard of morality is reason. And I also gave at least three objections to the view that God is the standard of morality, one from Plato, one from Hume, and one from Kant. First, we saw how moral autonomy implies that morality cannot depend on any external subject, whatever. Second, we saw the normativity objection that insists that facts about God's attitudes and responses are a non overlapping category of facts from truths about what we should do. Thus, facts about God cannot be identical to facts about what matters in a moral sense. Last, we saw how human, how assuming God is the standard of morality renders morality arbitrary
1: in such a way that it is close to nihilism. All right. Thank you so much for the opening statements, guys. And we are now transitioning to our rebuttal round. This rebuttal round is five minutes each. Uh, start with Mr. Jeremy Howard. You're up. For a five-minute rebuttal.
0: All right. So, um, basically, what we heard in Ben's opening statement was a lot of philosophical terminology that I hope um, the audience will spend time learning if they don't know those those terms. Uh, spend time researching um, and and looking up these things themselves. But what base? What basically it all amounts to is human autonomy, uh, the whole driving force behind. Uh, Ben's argument is the fact, uh, from his worldview, that we are independent, totally independent creatures who are able to come up with our own truth, our own reason, and our own morality uh, and be a law to ourselves. Um, If reason is the standard of morality, if reason is the basis for morality, we have to ask where reason comes from. Where does truth come from? And I look forward to getting into that in the cross-examination period. There are four terms that I want us to focus on, autonomy, authority, immutability, and certainty. Uh, autonomy is the idea that man is free, uh, that we are independent, that human autonomy uh, equals we are completely free to choose and to think uh, in a variety of ways. Uh, authority, meaning what is the weight of the standard behind the moral decisions that we make? In Ben's worldview, who is the authority? Uh, That is a very key aspect in developing our morality, is figuring out who's in charge and does that person actually have authority to make those decisions. Immutability, the idea that um, something is unchanging. Humans are prone to change. Uh, If you look at world history, our morals, uh, apart from God, have changed with every generation. And we have to ask if morals can change, then how do we ever know if our morals are correct and valid? And certainty is the last term that I I want us to focus on, and it'll be the theme throughout the rest of the debate. How can Ben be certain that anything he believes is true or good? Uh, How can he be certain about any of his uh, assertions? Um, I look forward to getting into that conversation. But the Christian worldview alone is able to account for uh, certainty. It's... It's the only worldview that can account for truth, that can account for reason, and it's because the starting point of the Christian worldview is God himself. The Christian worldview alone can account for purpose and for goodness. Um, Good is anything that God wills, anything that God does, anything that God decrees. Goodness is tied up in the nature of God. It is who God is because he has all authority and all autonomy. When we think about uh, human autonomy, uh, we actually don't have any. We're much more limited and we're much more uh, bound than we naturally think we are. However, God is absolutely free. God is the only absolutely free being. And his attributes, his goodness, isn't arbitrary, as was implied uh, in one of the arguments in Ben's opening statement. But Anything that God wills or does or decrees is eternally beautiful because it's all his design. He is the self-existent one, and all that he is is good by his own design. Um, and as we, as we are able to interact back and forth and ask each other questions, I look forward to, to getting into that more. Um, but as we go on, think of those four terms, autonomy, authority, immutability, and certainty
1: all right thank you jeremy for that rebuttal all right ben you're up for your five minute rebuttal um so i want to point
2: out at the start that my sympathies regarding the science of knowledge or what is called epistemology are with kant and Hegel broadly to be clear i'm defending a rationalist picture of knowledge and morality in the contemporary philosophical tradition of analytic philosophy so what follows uh is basically an analytic tradition um, understanding of what's called absolute idealism. And Hegel helps us understand this view with his famous dictum that the rational is the real and the real is the rational. And what this means is that the metaphysics of reality can be understood by the rational capacities of our minds. On this view, whatever is real must be discernible to mind because knowing and being are necessarily part of the same rational whole. Um, And I want to make an important distinction that I will frequently refer to the human capacity for consciously understanding things as reason, rationality, and judgment. And I will use the terms reasons or justification to refer to considerations that count in favor of reasoning or judging in certain ways. But it's important to realize that on absolute idealism, reason in the sense of our capacity for understanding and in the sense of considerations that count in favor are two sides of the same coin. On this view, there's a continuum between our valid forms of thought and what we should believe about the world. Again, because knowing and being are necessarily part of the same rational whole. Um, So I want to also lay out four terms that I think that we should reflect on because they help us understand Um, my point about the autonomy of reason. Um, And so I want to talk first about objectivity. So reason is objective in the sense that the truth of judgment does not depend on any particular subjective character. So reason is general or universal enough to apply to any particular whatever. Um the objectivity of reason arises when we conceive of the world as objects independent of subjective appearances, so it presupposes we are self-consciously aware there is a world independent of our subjective experience. Subjective thought is characterized by the attitudes or responses of subjects towards the objects of their judgment, while objective thought is characterized by irreducible rules or principles about how subjects should ought or must think and about the world and behave within the world so the first term i want everyone to, to consider is objectivity the objectivity of thought here implies that god's not the standard cuz god would be a subject and moral reasons are objective thinking or judgment that something is true within within it the uh, Hang on. i want to say the the second point i want to make is about self consciousness Thinking or judgment that something is true contains within it the self conscious awareness that it is right or it is objectively valid to judge so. For example, I am self consciously aware of my judgment that I have hands. I have the experience of my hands and I have a concept of something having hands. I judge that I have hands and that judgment also, in the same act, contains the judgment that it is right or correct in an irreducibly normative sense to believe that I have hands. Insofar as my judgment is objective, the judgment that I have hands is universal or independent of any given first person characters or determinations of subjects that are not contained in this very judgment. So I do not need to go beyond the object of my judgment in order to have knowledge of it. I've already mentioned my fourth term, which is irreducibility, and this idea that moral reasons cannot be stated in purely non-normative terms. The last term I want everyone to think about is universality. Reason is universal that any particular reason should convince anyone able and willing to consider it impartially, because its authority is general enough to apply to any particular self-conscious whatever, including a god. So universality of reason implies that reason is more fundamental even than a God.
1: All right. Thank you both for those rebuttals. Now we're going to transition to our cross-examination. Once again, this cross-examination is 50 minutes. Uh, the first 30 the first thirty minutes are be 15 minutes each asking questions, and then the final 20 minutes will be more of an open discussion where I may have some questions for you and you guys uh, inter- interact with those questions. Uh, so with that said, Jeremy, you're up for your 50-minute cross-examination of Ben. Um,
0: so Ben, if, uh, if reason and logic uh, are independent of the existence of God, what is the source of reasoning and logic?
2: So I don't believe that there is a source of reason and logic. So to use the philosophical jargon of necessity and contingency. So if something has a source, then that means that thing is contingent. That means there was a time in which it didn't exist. And then some source brought it about such that it came into existence. I don't think reason is like that. Um, Much like I don't think mathematics or logic are like that. So I don't think they come from anywhere. So if you ask, where does the number six come from? I don't think that um, question has a coherent answer. So I mentioned in my opening space speech the logical space of reasons and the logical space of causes or the realm of law, and that these two were not reducible to one another. So if we're asking for the source of something, we're in the logical space of causes. We're in the realm of law.
0: So would you but say that... So would you say logic and reason and even uh, morality are immaterial um, and unchanging?
2: Yes, they would be immaterial in the sense, because something material implies that it's part of the causal realm, so that it, that, you know, it obeys cons, you know, laws of conservation of energy, things like that. But again, if we're, if we're thinking about something like a reason or a number or a logical axiom, we're not talking about something that's described within the material world or the realm but, of causes.
0: But would you would you agree that they they are eternally unchanging? Um, logic and reasoning, uh, the laws of logic, for example, or mathematics as a principle, are these eternally unchanging, yes. immaterial realities?
2: Yes, because so again, eternality and unchanging. So these are concepts having to do with time and change. So again, that's going to be described in the logical space, you know, logical space of causes, the realm of law. Those aren't reason relationships. We need to be reasons are described within the logical space of reasons. So we would say that they are um, eternal and unchanging because they aren't even part of the temporal changing world. Just like the number six, or let's say the number seven has the property of primeness. It's always going to have the property of primeness, assuming we're, you know, base 10 and all those other assumptions in it. But seven's always going to have that property. It's not going to change. So if you, that would be an eternal truth.
0: If your worldview excludes God, how do you know that these are eternally unchanging and immaterial actualities? If there is no eternally unchanging immaterial God, then how do you get those realities?
2: So in my rebuttal, I wanted to lay out um, a rough view of what I call absolute idealism. And so on the absolute idealism, what I'm assuming is that, and this is a transcendental argument, I certainly concede that this can be challenged, is that the metaphysics of reality can be understood by the rational capacities of our mind. On this view, whatever is real must be discernible to mind because knowing and being are necessarily part of the same rational whole. So because we are rational animals, and we are also animal, rational animals that are part of the same whole, because we are rational beings, we are still part of the same rational whole. The world must also be rational such that our minds can discern truth in it. Now, that doesn't mean that we're infallible. That doesn't mean that our reasoning capacities are omniscient, because they're almost certainly not. But it does mean that there is a structure to the world to which our mind can fit to, much like a puzzle piece, puzzle pieces can fit together. How do you know that? So I think that's, so this is part of um, Kant's transcendental idealism, um, taking to... Hegel's conclusion into absolute idealism. So again, this is a transcendental argument in the sense that I believe that this is this has to be the case for us to know anything at all um, and to know anything in and of itself. So not just merely the appearances of things, but also understanding things in themselves. So Kant's view of idealism is often seen as incomplete because there's these weird things in themselves. The Hegelian turn says, no, we can know things in themselves. We do, we do away with things in themselves by thinking that knowing, by um, transcendentally arguing that knowing and being are one in the same, such that our minds are part of the same rational whole. And that rational whole comprises the logical space of reasons, which our causal world operates within. So that's where mathematics that's logic that's where possibility that's where morality all of that comes into play in the logical space of reasons
0: why do you choose that starting point as opposed to um, the christian worldview that starts with an eternally unchanging immaterial god that can provide um, the foundation for these eternally unchanging immaterial realities Um, you, you said that you said or sorry, you said that Kant and Hegel, that you believe they provided the foundation for that. Um, why start with man's ideas? Why not start with the God who has revealed himself?
2: Well, so the easy answer here is that I'm an atheist. And so <laughs> um, I don't believe that God exists. So that so that option just isn't um, available to me. Um, but there's, the question is certainly much deeper than that. And that's not a sufficient response. Um, the reason, one of the, 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 the reason that I laid out first um, comes from Kant, which is the autonomy of reason. And so I believe that the autonomy of reason um, implies that we should be like, when we're thinking about what matters, when we're thinking about the questions that are important, we're asking questions in a reason implying sense. We're asking questions that call for reasons as answers. We aren't asking questions that call for an authority to answer them, they're reason implying. So things might matter in an authoritative command implying sense, but they also matter in this reason implying sense. And I think the reason implying sense is the one that's morally important. So that's one reason why I start there. Second reason I went into is the is ought gap. So I think that there's a fundamental difference between facts about the way the world is or the way God behaves. Facts about how things in the world should behave, including God. So I actually think that my view is the only view that makes sense of the theologically important claim: God is perfectly good. Um, that claim is meaningless if goodness just is Godness. We aren't. But you saying don't believe we're...
0: in God, uh, and you've—I mean, from the beginning—you yeah. preclude the possibility that God exists. Therefore, no how is it possible that your uh, logical deductions there can um, can provide the only foundation for saying that God is good?
2: So I am an atheist, but I'm an atheist for other reasons. So I'm not ruling out God here. So I'm not doing philosophy of... Uh, well, I am doing philosophy of religion here, but I'm also I'm doing more fundamentally moral philosophy. So when I'm defending what is called ethical non-naturalism. This view is compatible with both theism and naturalism. It's by no means a naturalistic view. It's by no means an atheistic view. In fact, this is the view that I would would think some things matter in this irreducibly normative, reason-implying sense. I'm more confident about that truth than I am about the truth that God does not exist. So this is a view that informs my philosophy of religion because I think that reason is more fundamental. One, because of the autonomy of reason. Two, because of the is-ought gap. And then the third reason was because of Plato, the Euthyphro dilemma. So I think that if we try to insert God, the radically dualistic metaphysics of God, into the clockwork of ethics, we don't get anything value out of it. and In fact, we end up with an arbitrary um, moral view that's close to nihilism. Okay. So that um, those are the reasons why I rule God out of objective morality. The autonomy when of reasons is arbitrariness.
0: When it comes to authority, uh, authority can be defined as the power and right to give orders and require obedience. Uh, can you agree with that definition? The power and I right can, to give orders and require to, obedience. I do
2: want to point out: you're saying the power and the right. So when you say that this power has the property of having some right, you're assuming my view. Because that right, rights are something that would be, that are irreducibly normative. They're not the same thing, you know, as some command by God. There's, there's, you're saying that they have a justification such that it's morally this, permissible. I, I just grabbed this from
0: Google. It it, so. It- So, I mean, not not necessarily in the context of of anything about God and morals, but just the the idea, this was copied from uh, Google Define Authority, the power and right to give orders and require obedience, broad strokes. Is that agreeable?
2: Yes, but I I want to focus on that concept of the right. So when they say the power, they're, they're saying the ability. But when they say the right, they're appealing to a justification. They're appealing to something independent of God, that makes it the case that God has that right.
0: Do you believe true authority exists anywhere in the world?
2: True authority. Yes. So a police officer has a true authority within a society, within a social contract.
0: Where does that authority come from?
2: So that authority comes from a state.
0: Where does the state get their authority?
2: So, uh, from a legislature. So, depending on the form of the state, so laws can be legislated by a legislature or they can be enacted by a commander, you know, a dictator. So, it just depends so we, on the nature of the state.
0: If we keep going back, though, where does that authority come from? Where does that authority come from? Where do we? Well, end eventually,
2: up? in reasons. So, we can obviously say, like, some laws are unjust or that some laws are better than others. So at some point, you know, our laws are not just arbitrary conventions of our wills. We appeal to reasons for them. Why do we have this law in the first place? Why is, what sort of property is here that society should protect? What are the sorts of things that we owe to each other in a reason-implying sense?
0: So are you saying we're all individual authorities that through our own individual reason can grant that authority to another uh, through convention or... Uh, is it, does it work out a different
2: yeah, so, way? So again, when one of the four terms that I wanted to focus on was the universality of reason. So I wanted to focus on how um, reason is universal, meaning that any particular reason will apply to its its, its own authority, the, the authority of a reason itself, the counting in favor, so to speak is general enough to apply to any self-conscious authority, whatever. If it's the case that we ought to believe something or we ought to behave in some way, for some reason, then that same reason without exception would also apply to any other subject in a similar epistemic or moral position.
0: Um, And those, and that reason is self-existent, uh, outside of the human experience, those reasons, those eternal oughts of what we should do are self-existent. They don't have a source.
2: No, they do not have a source. So reason relations would not have. So pain would be bad in every possible world. Again, to use the jargon of possibility, the modal. So in all possible worlds where there is pain, it has the property of being intrinsically bad, something that we have reason to want to avoid for its own sake. That's the case even if there are no subjects. Subjects come along and they experience pain pain is always going to have that property of being something we should try to avoid. Cause that's just the nature of pain.
0: How do we, how do we get eternal moral aughts? If nothing, um, if there is no divine being, if everything is just chemicals and matter um, how do we get moral aughts from that? <laughs> and you have less than so 90 I, seconds. <laughs>
2: So again, I'll just, I'll I'll go with what we uh, said earlier, Um, to get something again, implies a a sort of a contingency to, you know, something wasn't there. And then we went and got it. So I can't go get the number six. I can't go get some possible world. The same way I can't go get a reason. Um, Reasons are necessary relations. They don't come from anywhere. So um, if we're talking about chemicals and their reactions, again, we're in the causal domain. We're in the realm of law. Um, reasons are in the logical space of reasons, and these are non-overlapping domains of facts. So, are they you certain that
0: moral sort of obligations e- exist? Are you certain that moral eternal moral obligations do exist? Hundred percent. So, certain?
2: I would not. I no. I would not. I would not cast it in terms of hundred percent certainty only because I don't believe that certainty is a necessary condition of knowledge. I would put it in terms of confidence. I have certain confidence in certain beliefs, more confidence in other beliefs, less confidence. Sure. We can call that faith if we, if we, if we, if if we we want to. All
1: right, that's time. That's time right there. All right, Benjamin, you are up for your 15 minute cross examination of Jeremy.
2: Okay. So the first question I wanted to ask is, that, on your view, um, our sinful natures demand death. I believe you said that in your opening statement. Is that a um, irreducibly normative truth that's just that's the way it has to be because that's what justice demands. Or could God make it the case that, Our sinful natures are not the penalty for death.
0: Yeah, so um, justice doesn't demand anything. God demands things. And so um, just wanted to make sure we're clear on the terminology there that I don't believe justice exists apart from God. I believe justice flows from God's eternal nature. Um, But what God has revealed to us is that, yeah, death is the... A penalty that is owed to all of us because of our rebellion. In fact, it's eternal death. Um, every sin against a holy God is an eternal infraction, an eternal um, sin. And so God has required eternal punishment uh, for such uh, rebellion.
2: So he could make it such that our sinful natures um, don't demand death. He could just say that.
0: Well, he, he can't deny himself. And so um, every, every decree, I'm every.
2: Not he, denied, uh, he could change his mind. Is he omnipotent enough to change his mind?
0: He, he cannot change his mind. He's immutable. So he cannot deny himself. That would be inconsistent. And God is the ultimate consistent being.
2: Ultimate consistent being. And so if our sinful natures did not demand death, God's nature would be inconsistent.
0: Um, if our natures did not say that, could you phrase that again? If our, or maybe phrase it a different if were way. The
2: case, it, you know, so let's, let's imagine a world where God has not decreed that our sinful natures demand death Okay. in such a world it, that you're saying that God, that that world is impossible because God's, God's nature would be inconsistent, which is impossible.
0: Yeah, I mean, we could we could come up with all kinds of hypotheticals of what ifs, um, but reality is all that matters, and God has revealed that to us.
2: Well, I, I realize that this is what we're judging reality to be, but then the question is, how should it be? So you made you didn't make you your your question, your statement was that our sinful natures, the the penalty for that is death. We are deserving of that. We are blameworthy such that we should ought or must be put to death yes so to me that's why is that the case why can't god just change his mind if you're going to then say well that because that would be inconsistent well again you're appealing to a normative standard independent of god to say that his nature would be inconsistent
0: no no so um the reason why it demands death is because God would be unjust to let any eternal punishment go unpunished. Um, so, so therefore, he would be
2: unjust. So, so justice is something independent of God. You're saying that God would have the property. No, no, he
0: would. Unjust. He has revealed himself as just. Therefore, he would be denying himself if he were unjust.
2: Yes, but that's just saying that he would be he would be judging himself some way that he's not. But I'm not, uh, we're not talking about how God would judge some situation of how it is. We're judging it how it ought to be. And you're saying that God judged it such that it ought to be the case that we are blameworthy for our sinful nature such that we should be put to death. He whatever, made it that way.
0: Whatever God wills, decrees, or does is the way it ought to be. He is the absolute standard in every sense.
2: Yes. I, on, on my my thought experiment, I'm conceding all of that. So you said earlier about, you know, we can do all these what ifs. Well, this is a, what if that I'm, I'm, I'm using your concepts. (laughs) Okay. So we're talking about, we're talking, we, we're saying that there's God created, um, persons on, on your view. And then he made it, he, he orchestrated their creation such that their very natures make it the case that they're blameworthy such that they should be put to death. He made it that way.
0: Have you read now, Genesis?
2: Not, yes, but no, okay. I'm, I'm independent of the Bible here. We're I, I don't operate that way. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so the question is what I mean. Your answers, I'm totally with you. I'm totally with okay. you. Your answers All right. appeal to the Bible. The question we're asking is, God could have made it the case that our sinful natures didn't demand death. There is no standard that makes it the case that God has to do it this way, external of them. We're, we're, your view excludes that. So God could have made it the case that our sinful natures didn't demand death.
0: Are you asking a question? I, I, don't, I don't know what the question yeah, is. So
2: that was also the, the, the original question um, was, why does our sinful nature make it the case that we deserve death? So we could have, let's imagine we don't have sinful natures. So at that point, we don't deserve death. But then we do have sinful natures. And so now it's the case that we deserve death. What changed in those situations? What made it the case that we deserve death? Well, Well, I think there's,
0: I don't think there's much value in going down the hypothetical route as, I mean, as a presuppositionalist in my apologetics and as a, just a Bible believing Christian, uh, my only concern is with reality. And when we bring in hypotheticals to try to prove some sort of philosophical point, I think it's a major distraction from, from what is real. And, um, I can't entertain the idea of what if we didn't have sinful natures, because uh, that has been the case of every human being since the first human being um, and their original sin. And so I, it really does no service for the conversation to pretend as though reality doesn't exist. Uh,
2: That's fine. Um, But again, So morality is in the logical space of reasons, not in the logical space of causes. So we can come up with any wild scenario we want to in the logical space of college it's causes like trolley dilemmas are a famous example of them. And our moral intuitions should give us the right answer. Our moral intuitions in combination with our moral theories in applied ethics should give us- I think you're supposed us... to only
0: be asking questions during this part. That's I, fair. I think that's, um, yeah.
2: Yeah. So, um Let me try to ask it in a different way then. Um, If our intuitions are to give us the right answers, then they should give us the right answers to our moral questions, even in hypothetical scenarios. So when I come up with a hypothetical scenario, could God have made it the case that our sinful natures did not demand death. We can apply our moral intuitions in there. We can take the is moral that theory that we have. Yeah, yes, it is. It, 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 I'm, I'm getting to the question. So, because my question is, why couldn't God make it the case that our sinful, the punishment for our sinful natures was not death? What fact makes it the case that God couldn't do that? Because if there is a my, fact—
0: My thesis is that God is absolutely free to glorify himself by governing his creatures according to his will alone. So any why question regarding why did God do this or why didn't God do this is because he gets the most glory out of whatever he chooses to do. That's his whole purpose in in all of this. So— um we don't know all the details of, of the why questions or the hypotheticals, but what we do know is that God is doing whatever he pleases in the heavens, and what he pleases to do is bring glory to himself.
2: So your conception of of authority had power and the right. So you just described God's power. God has the freedom to do whatever. Like, And I'll grant you that. That's what God, an omnipotent being's ability would be. My question, again, is, with, is not like the, it's asking about the justification. It's about asking that right. You said that God has the right to do whatever he wants. Um, in order to have that right, you have to appeal to some sort of substantive moral fact. And that substantive moral fact will be independent of God. So what are you appealing to when you say that God will be inconsistent if he were to make it the case that the punishment for our sins was death if he made it that's not the case he would be denying himself
0: to, and that's called inconsistency and he, he cannot deny so himself
2: he wouldn't, be, he wouldn't be denying himself in this situation he would be making it the case
0: no, he, he, has, he has said, he. Well, and you're supposed to be only asking questions, by the way. We have an open discussion part next. But the uh, yeah. when God has revealed that the punishment of sin is death, for him to go on and say that the punishment for sin is not death would be denying himself. I can't pretend that my worldview doesn't exist to defend my worldview. My worldview is rooted in Scripture, and we have what Scripture says, and I can't set that aside and then try to defend it without it. I need my worldview in order to defend my worldview. So does everybody else who seeks to do to defend it.
2: Okay, so I'll I'll leave that one then and move on to um, what may what makes it the case that we ought to obey God.
0: We are His creatures. Uh, We were created to honor and glorify Him in this life. We were made in His image, and we are made to uh, steward the earth in light of His commands for us. He has revealed those to us in His holy word, and it is our moral obligation, our moral responsibility to honor and glorify Him in every area of life as His image bearers.
2: So, but I'm asking what grounds that obligation. So um, this isn't a fact that you're appealing to that's independent of God. Is this something that God has also commanded? We should obey command God because God has commanded that we obey him. Correct. And what grounds that command?
0: He has revealed that to us through his word.
2: Okay, so another command. So, at infinite his, so his
0: revelation, is, his, his revelation to us, his revelation to us is the is the basis for that that theology that man is to glorify God.
2: Okay, so reasons all the way down. So we should obey God because if God told us we should obey God, and we should obey that command. God issued another command to obey that command, and God issued another command to obey that command.
0: But yeah, well, right. the, so this the is axiom. Well, it's, it's circular, um, just as every axiom for every worldview is circular, um, with the idea that God exists, and we are His creatures, and we are to obey Him. It's a, it's a starting point. We are to hear from God and to obey God. Um, that is the starting point of my worldview.
2: So would you admit that your view is circular in that sense, then?
0: Just like every other worldview, my axiom, my foundation for the worldview is, is circular. Yep.
2: Gotcha. Okay. Um, we'll, co- we'll come back to that, that point. So if God has the right to do anything, um, then do, do we have any intrinsic right to life in the such that we have a categorical right that should be respected? Or can God just strike us down whenever he wants?
0: God is absolutely free to govern us however He would like so he is then the we only don't have absolutely free. Right say that again
2: so we don't have it, we don't have an intrinsic right to life then we have a contingent right to life
0: we have the we have whatever God freely chooses to give us is what we have so and so as human beings if, well it depends on are you talking about physical life, spiritual life, right. what do you mean by life?
2: an intrinsic right to life, and an intrinsic right to continued existence such that it would be wrong for someone to kill us.
0: Yeah. So when it comes to the uh, respecting of the image of God, the um, that's the basis for why murder is wrong in Scripture. It is wrong to take someone else's life because that person is made in the image of God and God has all authority over human life. If God decides to take someone's life, he is never wrong in doing so because he has authority over it. Man does not have authority over someone else's life. Only God has that authority.
2: So those, those are why murder would be wrong on your view. I'll concede all that. My question is very specific. Do we have an intrinsic right to life or not? If we have an intrinsic right to life, based on the image of God, wrong, yes. It would be so. Well, no, but God not, could God, to kill us.
0: Well, it depends on who the subject of the sentence is. Who's doing the killing? Because God is not a man Universal. that he has to. Well, no, because God and man are in two fundamentally distinct categories. There cannot be the same principles uh, over God and over man because we are two fundamentally different beings.
2: Do mathematical principles apply to man and God?
0: He is the source of all mathematical principles. He is the triune, eternally immaterial, existent being, and we are finite in every way. So we are two totally different beings. That's time, right?
1: That's time right there. Okay. All right, so now we're going to transition to our 20-minute open discussion um, where I have a couple questions. I don't have too many questions. All right, so Jeremy, how can God be the the, uh, the standard of morality uh, when we see all the evil in this world? How is he the standard of morality? Him being God, he controls all things. He decrees all things. He's sovereign over all. We see a bunch of evil in this world. How can he be the moral standard?
0: Sure. So what humans do in flowing from their sinful nature um, is not traced back to God as far as Him being the author of it. Uh, The scriptures clearly state that God is not the author of sin. Uh, God cannot sin. Um, God's nature is perfectly good in every way. As far as what God allows to happen and what God ordains to pass, again, He is absolutely free to allow those things and ordain those things, he is the only absolutely free being, and he is ultimately absolutely free to glorify himself by governing his creatures according to his will alone. If we look at the world around us and say, uh, boy, I really don't like that. God must not be good. Well, we are then using our own finite, fallen logic and reasoning and preferences to be uh, evaluate God's performance and that is getting the creature and creator relationship backwards. Uh, it's hard for some of us to swallow, but God is absolutely free to glorify himself by governing his creatures according to his will alone.
1: What do you say to that? Uh, what do you say to that, Ben? Um, says that God is able to govern as he pleases, even if evil is in this world, he still governs as he pleases. It's for the glory of him. Um, so that's why we may see some evils in the world. Uh, and yet he still has the standard of morality. He is still the standard of morality. What What are your thoughts on that? Um. So
2: I think that if we're going to make um, God the standard of morality, then we essentially lose the theological important claim that God is good. I think that Claim then becomes trivial or vacuous of any meaning because when we say that God is good on this view, we're just saying that goodness is godness, is godlikeness. So when we say the claim God is good, the only thing that the only fact that we've stated is that God is godlike. And that's not a statement that could um, help us understand what his character is like. So if I said that the old man down the street was a good person, you could maybe start to infer certain things about his character. But if we say that God is just godlike and that that is the standard for goodness, we can't say anything about his nature. It could literally be anything. He could be like a cosmic Hitler. And then that would, by definition, be goodness. And so in an ironic twist I think the the problem of evil doesn't even arise here because you've already denied that God is perfectly good or that this evil is morally important such that it matters for a perfectly good being to respond to them in certain ways so in a way you've just already you've just denied that God is perfectly good and that's how it's avoided the problem of evil
1: did, and so did you I think that did, did you deny that God was perfectly good uh, Jeremy
0: no <laughs> that that would be fatal to my worldview
2: well, so, and I think I think it is because what I'm saying is that these you you're not denying the claim, but the claim would only state the fact that God is godlike, and that's a trivial vacuous claim.
0: What's wrong with trivial vacuous claims?
2: uh, they don't give us any substantive information, so they can't help us understand something we don't already know, nor could they help us make a decision one way or another.
0: And where, why is that virtuous to get more information and uh, be able to make decisions? What's, where's the value and virtue in that?
2: Uh, knowledge is in itself good. So it's something worth pursuing for its own sake. Why? Um, but it's also instrumentally useful. So um, knowledge can help us achieve our aims. Um, Why and I that also good? think, that, um, it's only good if what we are aiming at is relevantly good or worth achieving. So our aim might be global domination, in which case that probably isn't a good aim. So our aim, uh, we, but we how have could you ever
0: say it. that? How could you ever say that's not a good aim? If someone else says that's a, that's a fantastic aim. What's your argument against that?
2: So a, well, so that's just a moral disagreement. So that's where we would have to then appeal to moral facts and we would have to appeal to moral art. We'd have to do moral philosophy to try to resolve our moral disagreements. And probably the person that says that moral uh, or that world domination is morally virtuous is probably appealing to some sort of dubious moral fact.
0: Why are my moral facts inferior to your moral facts?
2: I don't know if they are or not. We would have to hash them out. So it would depend on. So it all depends on the content of those moral beliefs. And so, Let me,
1: um, go, go ahead, ahead, finish. Yeah, Benjamin. So, um, so you're saying we should hash them out. By what standard will we hash those things out? Because it seems to me that if we're hashing out, if we're hashing out morality, uh, a standard of morality, uh, what makes your 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 morality better than my morality, what standard will we both compare our moralities to and say, okay, this is the right standard that we should live by?
2: The standard is reason. Um, So that's how we're going to make progress. That's gonna be the common ground. So if we're having an ethical disagreement about what we should do, um, we're not having a beauty contest. We're not fighting one another. We are appealing to reasons. We are appealing but, but to But you said that
0: your reasoning is uncertain, right? Some.
2: So I frame it in terms of confidence. So I don't think that certainty is a necessary requirement for knowledge. So it's all that faith.
0: A, your reasoning is faith-based.
2: Well, if you want to call that faith, sure. I'm. Doesn't bother me. Well, that is what um,
0: confidence means.
2: Well, but there's, you know, I have more confidence in certain beliefs and less confidence in other beliefs. And so these confidence intervals are evidence-based. So if some piece of evidence or some piece of our, our argument comes in for some view, that's going to change the confidence of it. So this is when in probability theory is but based don't you
0: use theory. your reasoning to evaluate evidence isn't that circular? Cuz it sounded like so, earlier when I when I admitted circularity you made it sound like that was a bad thing but isn't what you're putting forth circular also?
2: No because it's I'm saying that reason is primitive. So I think the only way to avoid the circularity objection is to say that reason is fundamental. So I think that either reason is irreducibly normative like i say or there just is no thing called morality because you would How run you, into but,
0: but you came to that conclusion based on your reasoning yes so that's circular right
2: no it, so you said
0: reasoning is irreducibly irreducibly <laughs> normative and you came There's- and you came to that conclusion based on reason
2: so Reasons or justification are considerations that count in favor, but now reason or the capacity for rational thought, that's something different. That's the ability to be aware of and respond to reasons. So I'm using my ability to rationally understand the world, to understand reasons within the world. So again, I'm a Hegelian, so I believe that there is this connection between our minds in the world. The world is rational such that we can understand it in and for itself.
1: I mean, isn't the world contingent on something else though? I mean, if we have all these laws that we have in the world, we have all these things that we live by, logic, morals, these different aspects that we live in the world, um, where where are those things coming from? I mean, they're immaterial, they're abstract, and they're, where are these things that's coming true. from? Where, where, where would you say these things are coming from?
2: So I think that's, that the question doesn't have an answer because I don't think they come from anywhere. So again, come from implies this contingency. It's saying that, that um, these facts could change so that there could be a possible world that's identical to our world in all of its non-moral features, but in which the Holocaust was morally right or virtuous. And I think that's just a ridiculous I think that's just absurd. That can't possibly be the case. Well, an implication of that is that moral truths are necessary truths. They're they're true in all possible worlds. They don't come from anywhere. Just like mathematics doesn't come from anywhere, logic doesn't come from anywhere possible worlds modality if i say it's it's possible that i married a different woman or it's possible that i had a different child or it's possible that i lived in a different place these are not um contingent things these are necessary things
1: so jeremy what do you think about that so okay so these are not contingent things these are necessary things what would you say? How would you respond to that? Um, Yeah. What what are your thoughts on that?
0: I just think what we're hearing is a reflection of the image of God and the conscience that God has placed within everyone. Um, I would hope and I believe that Ben would say the Holocaust, to use the example he just used, uh, that the Holocaust was an evil event in history. To do that was evil. Um, Why does Ben believe that? Why does... Okay. All right. Good. Um, Why do the majority of people believe that? Um, It's because, intrinsic to us, because of uh, God and God creating us and creating us in His image, we are able to make moral judgments that reflect uh, truth. And um, trying to explain that without God leaves you with basically saying that morality itself, along with reasoning, along with mathematics, the laws of nature, etc., that those are all gods because they're eternal, they're eternally unchanging, they're immaterial, and we are obligated to follow them. And if they have no source whatsoever, but they exist independently on their own, then basically we find ourselves worshiping those, those things without any justification as to why they exist.
1: Ben?
2: So reasons are justification. So this is where my view avoids any sort of circularity. So if you ask for a reason, for some other reason, you're just gonna get another reason. That's that's just how it works. So some things matter because there are these necessary reasons to care about them. So it avoids a circularity because it might be the case that nothing matters. I have to leave open the possibility that nothing has this property of being intrinsically valuable or that there are no obligations such that we owe things to other people.
1: I so, do think it's that uh, if you have moral, moral, moral reasoning, right? So reasoning, we have a, a reasoning to an morality, right? So would you say that reasons are an abstract thing, immaterial thing or something physical?
2: abstract and immaterial. So um, they're what allowed us to make moral progress. So it used to be the case that slavery was believed to be morally permissible. We now all recognize it as something that's morally wrong. And so we made moral progress. How did we make that moral progress? I think we made that moral progress through reason, through argument. We argued that Black people deserve having certain rights and that people should not be enslaved and that governments don't have the right to, um, turn, you know, deny these sorts of freedoms based on arbitrary characteristics.
0: But, but you don't have certainty that that actually is moral progress. It's just a conviction that you have based on faith, right?
2: Well, so it's a confidence that I have based on the facts and the arguments, the reasons that I have available to me. So again, I don't have to be 100% certain about something in order to know it. I could have varying degrees of confidence about some belief, depending on what facts I'm aware of and the arguments that I'm aware of.
0: But in your worldview, it is absolutely possible that we actually went backwards morally when we ended the ended slavery and the slave trade was abolished and all of that. It, that's It's absolutely possible that we went backwards, right?
2: No, because basic moral truths are necessary truths in all possible ways. So if it's the case that what we owe to each other is respect, and that's a necessary truth, then no, it couldn't have been the case that we moved backwards. um, How would you defend that against
0: somebody who who says it's a necessary truth that we shouldn't respect each other. It's a necessary truth that we should have yeah. the slave trade again. I mean, how do you even defend that if you don't have certainty?
2: Uh, by, again, by doing moral philosophy, by appealing to argument, by then taking those claims and using thought experiments, the uh, possibilities that you were resisting earlier where you thought, well, oh, I just, I, you know, I can't really entertain these ideas. Well that's where we that those are the tools that we use to help other people see um where they've made some mistake are you certain of that reason. so i have a high confidence of that so okay I, again, I well, so
0: it. you can't I'm say it with certainty right
2: well so i don't need to because certainty is not a necessary condition of knowledge i don't have to have certainty
0: do, are you certain of that
2: knowledge. i do no and i don't need to be
0: okay are you certain that you don't need to be yes so you do have certainty
2: about some beliefs, but not all my beliefs. It's not a necessary belief. So there's so, so like I have, I'm certain that I exist. So I think therefore I am, I, I'm certain that there is a thinking thing going on. I am certain that contradictions can't be true, but I don't have to have certainty for all of my beliefs.
1: No for thoughts. I thought y'all was about to keep going, man. <laughs> I, so, I, I just started asking questions. I thought I'd back off. All right, all right. Um, so, I, I guess um, I guess we can conclude this section a little early. We have about three minutes left, and I don't have no more questions. That was like my questions. Okay, well, I if you have.
0: don't have any questions, I'm I'm game to keep asking.
1: Oh, go for yeah, it! Keep asking,
0: it. Or, or Ben <laughs> or ben can ask me because I've just it's been kind of one sided. So,
2: I've liked it though. It's fun. Let's let's keep going. If you've okay. got, to, I'll have to go notes and find them. If you've got them off the top of your head, go for it, man.
0: So, so if you're certain that you don't need certainty, um, to know anything, how is that not self-refuting, um, to say that uh, well, I'm so certain that do I don't need certainty? Is,
2: what do you think knowledge is? So I think that knowledge is at least, uh, justification, belief, and truth. So the classic, classic justified true belief um conception of yeah, I knowledge. Could, I'd agree with that. So does so where does certainty fit in there?
0: Well if you is that are part uncertain.
2: of truth? Is that part of Is that part of belief? What is that? Well
0: mean? so the the word confidence, you know it's the two words that mean with faith, uh confide, right? And so sure. if everything is faith if everything is faith based, then we we can't even define knowledge. We can't define truth. We can't define the virtue of knowledge and truth. Um, We need to have some fundamental certainty to have us to, that guides us, that allows us to make sense of the world around us. If we give up that certainty, then we can't know anything.
2: So is faith an epistemic virtue or an epistemic vice?
0: Um, Could you provide more? background to that question
2: like, so you're so i just conceded i'm a philosopher of religion so the concept of faith isn't yeah. one that i find icky um but so if we're just calling you know our justifications a leap of faith is this faith an yeah. epistemic virtue or an vice
0: yeah i'm not doing uh, the Karl bart thing or um uh the guy before him uh the Sir, Kirk, uh, Kierkegaard. I'm not doing the Kierkegaard thing. Um, but, uh, (laughs) but, uh, yeah, so we have to recognize that faith is an aspect of the Christian worldview. Obviously it's a major aspect. It's the substance of things hoped for. It's uh, the things not seen and believing in those things, trusting in those things. Um, God being, being one. I mean, he's, he's an invisible being and we can't see him. Um, However, we also need to recognize that there are, are certain objective truths that exist within the Christian worldview and that um, our faith is resting on those objective truths. And I, I don't, I don't know if I would want to use the terms of virtue and vice to try to explain that, um, but we do see that there's objective truth and faith at play within the Christian worldview, whereas in your worldview, all I'm hearing is the aspect of faith because you can't have certainty in any objective truth.
2: So certainty requires faith. So like, unless I have this Christian faith that you're talking about, certainty is just off the table. Am I understanding that right?
0: that's what it sounds like, uh, hearing you explain your worldview. Yeah.
2: So, cause I would take, um, the Kantian view, um, that faith without reason is blind, but reason without faith is impotent. And so what do I mean by that? I mean that, um, we have to take, uh, I will go, I will appeal to Soren Kierkegaard here. Um, at some point we have to take a leap of faith in our, um, judgments. Because there's always a possibility, an epistemic possibility, that we might have made some mistake, or that there is some experience or consideration that is somehow beyond our reach. Um, that's one of the classic uh, objections to foundationalist philosophies, and so I'm Hegelian in part by trying to avoid that by saying that look, this 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 faith, this leap of faith that we put into reason is justified by the transcendental argument I gave earlier from Kant about we couldn't know anything, um, unless the world is set up like this. So that's what I mean by faith without reason is blind. Meaning that if you just have faith in anything, you're not going to find the truth, but reason without faith is impotent. Meaning that you would just never get anywhere. You would just sit there and you would be forever stuck between two considerate two considerations never being able to make that judgment
1: and all right, so, that's time right there that's the time uh, right there yeah. all right it's all good it's all good all right so now we're going to transition to our closing statements so audience if you have questions make sure you get them in um so we can have this q a uh so starting with jeremy you're up for your your five minute closing
0: all right. Um, I really appreciate the discussion, and uh, all I'm I'm hearing just so much of the struggle of wanting to embrace the Christian worldview of logic and reason and morality um, without starting with the Christian God. There's just a lot of um, a lot of philosophical discussion that just. At, at its core, precludes the existence of God, and um, you can't have the th- the result of God's existence without the God who exists. And um, it, it's tough to to listen to. And um, you know, I, I just hope Ben that that you can see where I'm coming from on this. That these eternally unchanging, immaterial realities, the fact that you believe there are moral obligations, that you have a moral obligation to your wife, that you have a moral obligation to your child who's about to be born um, in a couple of months. Um, the fact that those moral obligations exist means that uh, there is a God who has authority, who has designed this place, and who has uh, given us uh, a conscience, who has given us a law, and who has given us a Savior. And um, and that's how we are to make sense of of the world around us. Without Without Him, we can't actually know anything. And we will ultimately end up in a place of forfeiting all knowledge. We will forfeit all purpose. We will forfeit all meaning because all that there is in the universe uh, without God is just a bunch of atoms uh, bumping into each other, a bunch of chemicals in our brain, and we have no meaning. We're seeing the result of that worldview in our nation and in our world today, and it's absolutely devastating. Uh, but the message of the gospel is able to redeem that the message of the gospel that though we are sinful fallen creatures by nature and by choice uh, God himself has stepped in to humanity he came in the likeness of men that he was in our stead on the cross dying the penalty we uh, the penalty we deserve death uh, he took on for us as a substitution uh, we were talking earlier about Uh, The sin nature requiring death, and I hope that's something that um, is heavy on your heart. I hope you've thought about that, and I hope you continue to think about that, that we have earned for ourselves death, but God has given us a gift in Jesus Christ. He's given us eternal life, and as Jesus was in our place for our sins, bearing the wrath of God, uh, we can have all of that sin removed. Our sin can be cast as far as the East is from the West, because our resurrected Savior is able to um, provide the the atonement that we need, and it's by faith alone. When we recognize that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves, and we submit to God in the gospel, He is uh, able. He is willing uh, to transfer us into His kingdom to make us children in His family, and. We find and discover, as Colossians 2 says, that all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom are hidden in Christ, and that's when we truly begin to start understanding the world around us. Uh, It says in Scripture that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and without the fear of the Lord, we just have a bunch of philosophical Uh, Jargon. Um, We have endless books, endless uh, philosophical arguments that never result in any certainty that never result in any hope. Um, But if we begin with the fear of the Lord, and uh, we start with submitting to God as our Creator, then we can truly know we can truly understand and When we begin with that repentance, God is faithful to lead us into a knowledge of the truth. Uh, Scripture gives us that promise. I hope that for you, Ben, I hope that for anybody who's listening, that we wouldn't try to get there on our own, because in the end, we're just running circles and we have no answer, but the answer is found in the gospel.
1: All right. Thank you, Jeremy, for that closing statement. All right, Ben, you're up for your closing remarks. Five minute closing.
2: Okay. So um, I want to first thank Jeremy for uh, doing this discussion with me tonight. Um, I have had a lot of fun. And so I'm an atheist, but first and foremost, I'm a philosopher. And so I think that the central question of ethics, of um, what should I do, is a eternal question of philosophy that we should take very seriously and that all of us should reflect on, um, with humility and, um, with respect for others that disagree because, um, disagreements in moral philosophy define some of the deepest fault lines, um, of our society. Um, and so I want to thank Jeremy for taking this really seriously and just having a great discussion with me tonight. Um, so. I defended a form of ethical non-naturalism tonight, and so it should be clear from the discussion so far that um, Jeremy and I are using two very different concepts of what morality is. So I believe that morality is constituted by reason implying relationships, such that morality is a function of reason. Whereas Jeremy, uh, seems to believe that morality is a function of authority such that it is an authority things matter because an authority says they matter And so the only way to hash these out this out is by appealing to argument to try to resolve these disagreements um, So I described tonight the concept of a moral reason. Um, I gave a couple examples of moral values like justice, prudence, and benevolence. And as far as my objections go towards the theologically-based ethics on offer, um, really focused, focused a lot on Kant, Hume, and Plato, and what's called the naturalistic fallacy. Um, so the naturalistic fallacy um, attempts to conflate normative and non-normative facts, to say that they're one in the same sort of fact. Whereas Hume is gonna to wanna to say, no, these are two different kinds of facts. Moral facts, facts about the way the world ought to be, and facts about the way the world is, are in two different non-overlapping domains of inquiry. And so we call that the normativity objection. Um, moving to Kant, we saw his, famous formulation of the categorical imperative called a kingdom of ends. And what the kingdom of ends allows us to see is um, the autonomy of ethics and how moral principles and moral reasons when we are making decisions are self-governed and that they have to be self-governed if we are to actually be responsible for our actions. Um, This is where we get concepts like integrity um, you know, doing the right thing when no one is watching. Well, if someone is always watching and is always threatening, threatening punishment, we couldn't have genuine moral integrity or responsibility because we wouldn't generally be able to do something for its own sake, the duty, you know, even if, um, it had bad consequences for ourselves. Um, And the last objection is the well-worn euthyphro dilemma from Plato's famous dialogues by the same name. And what this tries to show is um, when we try to insert the radical dualistic metaphysics of God into the clockwork of ethics, we end up with this arbitrary moral theory in which god could make it the case there is no justification for why god commands one thing rather than another um, so and that this basically leaves god whatever commands god does command arbitrary and that this is a problem because this view ends up being close to nihilism um, because it implies that we don't have an intrinsic right to life there's not some fact about us that makes it the case that we should be categorically respected um, so those are the three main objections that I would want to press tonight against, um, the moral argument as well as defending a, a form of ethical non-naturalism.
1: All right. Thank you both for the closing statements. Now we're going to transition to our Q and A. So we got some questions for you guys. We can get through these questions. So what I know. All right. First question coming at you, Ben. And here you go. What evidence would you accept for the existence of God? How would you accept evidence for a transcendental being to look? So um, the
2: answer that I find most convincing appeals to religious experience. So if Um, I am a philosopher of religion, um, so I have not been convinced by the arguments of natural theology, nor Thomism, nor presuppositionalism. But if I were to have a cogent religious experience, um, I think that's the sort of um, consideration that could tip the scales um, in its favor. Now, um, if there's some sort of argument for God that comes around to change my mind. My views of God would probably look much different than um, the Christian conception of God. So when I put on my theist cap, um, my version of theism that I find the most plausible would be something like a universalist type God, that and uh, an open theist type view of God, where God couldn't know the future actions of free persons. Um, so I would have a, I would probably have a theistic view that is much more liberal than I think the majority of Christians would uh, um, be comfortable with. But I think those are that's how my, right now the considerations that could move my belief.
1: All right, Jeremy, what are your thoughts?
0: Yeah, the um, original sin in the garden was autonomy, seeking autonomy from God's authority, and. Um, you know, when Ben articulates the type of God that he would believe in, it it is going back to that original sin, um, seeking to craft a God of our own thinking, a God that we would desire. And when that's our starting point, um, you know, we're kind of setting the goalposts right where we want them, um, and and we will hit that every time. But if we start from a position of we cannot know anything for certain unless the one who knows all things reveals it to us because we're fully dependent on him, we are not autonomous, then we will believe in uh, the one true God and we will submit to whatever he has revealed himself to be and whatever commands he has for us. So um, totally different starting points in that regard. And we need to be careful not to f- fall back into that original sin of autonomy.
1: All right. All right. Also, Pat
0: Hanley is ripped. I'm looking at that profile picture and whoa, that guy, he can bench press or
1: something. (laughs) All right. So Ben, these questions are all for you, man. Uh, I'm looking at them and they're heavy you, Ben, though. I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry. No,
2: it's all good. It's all good. We're having fun.
1: All right. Next question. Started watching late. So maybe this this was already addressed. But how, how does an is become an ought apart from a command in the context of morality? So I do not believe
2: that an is becomes an ought um, because of a command. So I think a command is there still just is statements. So I don't bridge the gap between is and ought. So I take the distinction as sharp. And so I insist that these are two different domains of facts. So I gave the example of um, rivers couldn't be the same as sonnets. And that's because facts about rivers and facts about sonnets are just in different category, just different domains of fact. And so I think less obviously um, is and ought facts are are similar, Um, that they cannot... So, if you were to say, "How do you how does an is become an ought?" It can't.
1: All right, Jeremy. Any thoughts on that?
0: No, Uh, when he starts getting into uh, all that philosophical (laughs) stuff, it it goes way over my head. So he was much better suited to address any of that.
2: All right, is ought gap from David Hume for any listeners curious.
1: Now the question I just got to bring that one up better, but it says he is asserting he has a capacity to reason. How does he know he has that capacity to reason? God seems that way to me.
0: Jeremy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is the, the central issue when it comes to, uh, circularity, um, you know, to to use Vantillian language, there are vicious circles and virtuous circles, and I do think it is a vicious circle uh, from Ben's position to to say he has the capacity to reason because he has reasoned to that, and I don't see any way around it um, in in his worldview. And I don't know if you want to now that I've given you more to address. I don't know if you want to answer that before we move on.
2: <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll I'll keep it simple. Um, so this is the classic uh it's what's called the Munkhausen trilemma in um philosophy it's you know uh there's problems with coherentism there's problems with foundationalism there's problems with just um an axiomatic or uh taking things on faith sort of view and so um you have to ask yourself um how do I know that I'm reasoning? And so this is going to come back to Descartes' cogito, the I think, therefore I am. And so that that's going to be a starting point. And so that you just start from the assumption that it seems like thinking is going on. And so that puts you pretty well in a foundationalist camp. And from there, there's several branches of, you know, people disagree with that. And there's different ways you can, um, go from there. But for anyone who's interested in that question, I would certainly recommend starting with Descartes Cogito.
1: All right. Next question. Ben, if you are a Hegelian in your approach, which type are you? Are you a metaphysical realist or conceptual realist? So that is a deep, question. and Who
2: asked that? Andy Ashenden, Andy. you were the man. Yep. So I, if I'm being honest, the answer is I don't know yet. So I'm still uh, in that the continuing war between Hegelians over metaphysical realists and conceptual realists. Um, I lean, I think, more towards the metaphysical realists. Um, I know maybe in three years when I go back and rewatch this, I'll be like, ah, I can't believe I said that. Um, it's one of the, it's a very interesting discussion among Hegelians, And basically um, it mirrors conversations about abstract objects and nominalist theories. So Platonism, nominalism. So it kind of, um, Hegel's view, if you read it at face value, has this metaphysical type interpretation to it. Whereas you can, give another interpretation, this alternative interpretation of the phenomenology spirit that's a conceptual interpretation. So I don't want to get too deep in the jargon here in the Q&A, but for anyone mm-hmm. interested, certainly check it out. Um, I wish I had a better answer than I don't know yet, but I'll just settle for I lean towards the metaphysical realists.
1: All right, Jeremy, any thoughts on that question? Yeah,
0: yeah really- buddy,
2: come <laughs>
1: yeah
0: uh no really i mean the the i think the most meaningful response i can have from a christian worldview is what i stated in my closing statement um about that's almost endless these trails you can go down philosophically in all the the books that have existed in antiquity and you're just never going to get what you're looking for i mean there's never going to be a resting place of certainty or of hope or of purpose and um i hope you repent and believe uh in the one true God.
1: All right, all right. And another question for Ben. Ben is the man tonight. What do you suppose would happen if you face the God of the Bible when you die? And where then, and where then accountability for all, all of your sin? I'll just like to know what you think would happen.
2: I think there would be a deep philosophical discussion then uh, began to happen because I would have a lot of questions. I would um, have questions, you know, why evil would be the, the first one. Um, Why so hidden? Um, Why several different other, you know, we could obviously go down that because I would genuinely be puzzled. I would genuinely be confused of how did I get things so wrong? How did I get this capacity for reason and still get things so wrong?
1: Jeremy, what are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah. Um, it's when, when that happens, uh, I don't think there's going to be any, any conversation about, uh, you know, God, you didn't do enough to show yourself to me. He's, he's, uh, evidenced himself through his creation. He's given you his word and, uh, you're made in his image with a conscience. Uh, you have moral obligations that you recognize, um, pick up his word and fear God and believe. That's, that's my advice.
1: and we have two more questions and we'll wrap it up
0: both for ben still
1: oh for ben man ben (sighs) is a popular man
2: i'm sorry guys i I didn't didn't know i was
1: doing this (laughs) (laughs) how does stating that logic doesn't come from anywhere while appealing to logic prove the point i don't know i don't think i understand the
2: question
1: I guess, he's, I guess he's saying you're appealing to logic, but you're saying logic doesn't come anywhere, come from anywhere, I guess. Does
2: it come so from- uh, the, yeah. the way to, to, to maybe help make this clear is to give the example of mathematics again. So, I mean, I can appeal to mathematics. I can put together all sort of mathematical theories. I can use them in all different sorts of ways. But I don't have to ask the question, well, where does this mathematics come from?
0: Jeremy? Yeah, um, I, I don't know if I have too much to add. I mean, basically everybody participates, uh, regardless of their axioms and beliefs. Everybody participates in logic, math, laws of nature, um, et cetera, and we we all participate in it. But we all have different, uh, well, groups of people have different theories about where these things come from. And perhaps what you know this guy is asking is if you if you don't even um, look to justify where logic comes from by, by saying, well, it's not contingent, it's just eternal. Then um, how is that satisfactory? I think that might be what he's saying. Um, he, maybe from his point of view, it's not satisfactory. And I don't know if you want to address that, Ben, or, yeah.
2: No, no, I think that was good. Without having a clear understanding of the question, at best, we're kind of yeah. speculating too. All
1: right. And this is our final question right here. Same guy. Uh, where does the- I often don't?
2: I just presuppose that. So if I'm an externalist about knowledge, as long as my cognitive faculties are functioning properly, properly, and I'm not being um, influenced by distorting factors, then I have knowledge. But if I were to take an internalist point of view, I could just—it just seems that way. And that there's a principle of phenomenal conservative that says that I have prima facie justification. Um, for means when things seem some way, I'm justified in believing that they are that way, absent of defeaters. So those are two different ways to um, approach that question.
1: All right, all right, good stuff, guys. Good stuff. That concludes this debate. That concludes the Q and A portion of this uh, of this debate. I thank you guys for joining it's me. Uh, yeah, it's, it's thanks a for having conversation. me. Conversation, huh? You thank say, you man? for having me yeah oh, thanks no for problem. having
2: me and i know it was last minute but uh jeremy is is great to become friends with you and have this discussion thank you so much yeah
0: th- thanks ben thanks for signing up for this even though i'm a presuppositionalist i know that uh that's not fun for many philosophers
2: <laughs> but, i had a blast uh, i had a blast good, good, no I, I i disagree with that uh character, character a lot of my i'm friends with tyler villa i'm a lot of my friends are presuppositionalists so. I think there is a healthy tradition of presuppositionalism. That's worth engaging. with. Good. cool.
1: Cool. Uh, Thank you guys. I do send out gifts. So I'll be contacting you after the show to get your address, to send a gift to you. Just a thank you to me, uh, from me to, uh, just say thank you to guys and take your time to come on the show. All right. Thank you so much. Okay. Thanks. All right. Great stuff. Another great show. And, um, a good old morality debate, you know, these debates always bring home the centrality of who we are as humans um, and why we do the things we do and who are we accountable to. Um, and that's an important understanding that we need to have. Um, we're just not freelancing and being moral, you know, just doing whatever we want. You know, we're just not willy nilly in it all over the place with our morality. They're their know that we have to apply uh, abide by and we need to understand what that standard is and you know obviously the gospel truths is engaging the culture of Christian truth and we're doing that through debates interviews and Bible lessons and the title of the show is the gospel truth so I cannot leave you without first telling you the gospel what the gospel is all right so first Corinthians chapter 15 verse one through five it says now I make to I make known to you brethren the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. How important is that? How important is that to understand that Jesus Christ died and he resurrected? Um, And a lot of people, when they preach the gospel, they tend to focus on the death of Christ and they don't really exemplify the understanding of the resurrection, how important the resurrection is. Um, So that's the point of this verse, you know, the, you know, Paul, the apostle speaking to his audience, you know, expressing that the, the, that Jesus Christ's resurrection wasn't something that's, that's just made up. It wasn't something that didn't have uh, eyewitnesses. Um, he appeared to the 12. He appeared to Cephas, And this is something that we as Christians hold fast to. And obviously, when we're preaching the gospel, we want people to know who Christ is. We want people to know the truth in Christ and that Christ is who he said he is in the scriptures. And we pray that for not only Ben, but we pray that for other atheists out there. We pray that for those who hold to a different worldview, Buddhists, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, whoever. We want them to accept the gospel um, and, and come to a saving faith in Christ. And, and that's important. So the Christians out there, you're watching, make sure you're preaching the gospel. Make sure you're telling people about who Christ is. Make sure you're telling people about the resurrection because it's important. Um, there, you know, there are eternal ramifications Um, and it's important that we are doing our duty as Christians that we not only use Facebook and YouTube to have fun with and entertainment, but we also use it to glorify God and that's preaching the gospel and we need to do that and we need to keep doing that even in this crazy world that we live in. So I do thank uh, Jeremy and Ben for coming on this show and and hashing it out on a very important topic and I thank you. Um, Thank you for viewing and I thank you for showing up, man. And I know it's a little late on the East Coast, but I thank you anyway for coming on and, and, and being in the audience. And um, as we as I as I go out now, you know, closing the show out, um, just take time to subscribe, take time to like, um, and get this content out there, all right? I can't do this alone. Um, I need your assistance as well to spread this gospel truth to the masses, all right? I want to thank you so much for joining me. May God bless you and may God keep you. So